Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm Sam Andreatis. I am preaching for you this morning, and I'm real tic- really tickled that I could be here on the Sunday when you're honoring Stan. Uh, those of you who know me know I look a little bit different here. This is to honor Stan. Uh, thought I would let this grow, sort of look a little bit more like him uh, as part of my way of, of honoring him. But uh, I'm glad also that he is now able to step back at this time of his life and get a very, very needed rest, very well-deserved rest. So um, praise the Lord for all that's gone on here and what's happening here now. Well, I'm, I'm uh, privileged here to be with you. Uh, as we're approaching Christmas, uh, I know that you're having a, a service tomorrow night to really enter into the holiday, which um, um, is great. I'm thrilled about that. So for our time this morning, I would like to go to prepare for the holiday by visiting the, the premier passage about Christmas in the New Testament. Uh, really, what we're going to read here in a moment is one of the clearest descriptions in the Bible about the meaning of Christmas. So I thought that would be a good thing for us to do this morning in preparation as we're coming up to the holiday. So if you would, um, please stand while we read from Philippians chapter 2. And this is beginning in verse 3, and I'm going to do a few more verses than what I I ask to be printed here in your bulletin. In your Bibles, it's Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Um, or you can look at it on page 3 of your bulletin. This is We're doing it from the RSV version here. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And for a few more verses, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you. So as I said, premier Christmas passage, uh, you might not turn to this passage when you're thinking about Christmas, uh, usually, but I want to show you why. But to understand this passage, really enter into this passage, and to really read it uh, the way that it was written, with the purpose that it was written, we have to understand something about ourselves. We have to understand our obsession with something about ourselves, our reputation. We are confined by this 
obsession. We're restricted by this obsession. And we're absolutely devoted to preserving our reputation with others. I mean, a good reputation is very nice. It's something that's valuable. But for us, it's way too important. We think about it all the time. Just, just take, take some time and look at your thought life. Look at the thoughts that run through your head. If you're honest about it, you'll see that you are constantly harassed by thoughts about others' opinions about you. And it, it and sometimes destroys us. Sometimes you, you are, are worrying, and this is, this is always there somewhere in the back constantly. We're worrying about what others think of us or our performance. Maybe some of us are facing a performance evaluation at the end of the year for our job. And it can destroy us if we're told, you know, we're not, we're not up to snuff. It can really get us. I know, you know, one woman uh, was telling me that when she was in college, she wasn't even able to look at the comments that were when she did a paper and she got the paper back. You know, she wasn't able to really look at the comments, you know, at all because she just, you know, couldn't handle what it, what it meant about her, the criticism. Now, you might say, well, I'm not like that. In fact, some of you might say, I don't really care what people think about me. I'm the kind of person that, you know, I just don't care what people think about me. Even if you're one of those types of people and you think that you don't care what people think about you, just wait until you get slandered or you get falsely accused. Um, and I pray that it doesn't happen to you, but, but if it does, when it does, then you find out, you know, you really do care. It actually eats away, destroys you. Uh, when someone says something about it, you, know it's not true. It'll eat you up, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If you've experienced that, and so we become politicians. You know, professional politicians. We know they start at a certain point making decisions um, in order to get reelected, right? And we criticize them for that, right? We say, no, you should you shouldn't be making those decisions on the basis of your reputation or public opinion. You should be doing, we, we think we sh you should be making the decision about what you vote for, how you vote based on principle, based on what's right and what's wrong. Um, but uh, they start to say, well, you know, I, I, uh, I need to really pay attention to public opinion. And politicians that do that, professional politicians, we fault them, but we do the same thing. We become little politicians. And I would just like you to think about sometime, take a little bit of time and think about how many things you do that are really done in order to preserve what people think of you? How many of the things, if we're really honest, that we do just so that we can be in a good position with other people, that other people would think well of us? And when people don't think well of us, we have to run around and make sure you know, we correct that. We're, that's why I say it's an obsession with us. We're obsessed with it. Do you ever think about what it would be like to be free of that obsession? You think about how restful it would be. Think about how much more you would get done if instead of, you know, uh, one third of what you were doing is looking over your shoulder about how people are thinking about what you've done. How to be free of that? Well, that's the message for us today that I want to talk to you about. About coming to a place, this is the answer, 
of being emptied of yourself, of needing to not count your status as a thing to be grasped. Now, wait a minute. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Isn't that sound similar to what we just heard in this scripture? You see, the answer, folks, for this is theology. We need theology. Now, I know you don't think that you need theology because you think theology is this stuff up here that you know they, maybe they study in seminary and sometimes you have to think about it, but it's not really practical. And so I know some of you, I say we need theology, you're checking out right now. You're saying, okay, maybe I'll tune out on this message because theology doesn't excite you. But you know, the Bible always brings us back by showing us that theology is always practical. The theology in the Bible, anyway, is always practical. It's always in the service of something about life. And <clears throat> I could give you a number of examples. Take this idea of our substitutionary atonement. Now, that's a pretty important theological point for us as Christians. The, the substitutionary atonement means that Jesus took our place when he died on the cross, and he was actually doing it in place of us. It's a very important point, a very profound, deep theological point. Well, there's only a few places where it actually is clearly stated in the Bible. And the place where it's probably most clearly stated is in Mark chapter 10. This is something that, in something that Jesus makes a statement. It basically lays it out. He says, you know, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's one of those places where it just clearly states what we call a substitutionary atonement, this theological point. He's, Jesus says, I came to, to give my life, to die as a ransom. In other words, in the place of others. Well, you'd think when Jesus was saying that, what was he doing? Was he, he was probably giving a, a theological class to his disciples, right? He was sitting them down. He was saying, this is, the, this is now I'm going to give you the systematic theology. I'm going to lay it out for you. No. He wasn't actually giving a theological discourse. In fact, he wasn't really talking about theology at all. He was talking to his disciples about being great. He was, he was kind of going on their aspirations. He was recognizing that they really wanted to be great. He said, you want to be great? This is how to be great. And he was telling them how to be great. That's the discussion. And then he says, by the way, <laughs> by the way, you really want to be great. Um, follow me, because this is real greatness. And then in the process of that, he gives this statement, this, this important theological statement of the substitutionary atonement. Or take the Trinity, right? That's something you, you associate with theology, right? It's this important thing. God is three persons, yet one God. Very important for Christian doctrine. Very, very fundamental um, theology. There are only two places in the, in the New Testament where the Trinity, that God is three and is one, is really explicitly stated, where it's just laid out. One of those places is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And even this is when the Apostle Paul is writing in the middle of the first century, and he's, he's, he's talking to his church in Corinth, and you think he's probably laying out a theology for them, right? Bring up the Trinity. He's probably saying, okay, now here's, let me explain to you about God, the characteristics of God, and here's this, and, and here's the Trinity. No. 
you know what Paul is doing when he makes this profound statement, one of the clearest statements in the Bible of the Trinity, where he says, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. You know what he's doing? He's saying goodbye. <laughs> he's saying bye-bye to the Corinthians. He's, he's, giving, he's signing off, and he's saying, I want to bless you. And by the way, let me bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And other place where the Trinity is really explicitly um, brought out and stated is in Matthew 18, where Jesus is not talking about theology at all. He's talking about baptism. He's telling his apostles how to baptize. So I could go on and on about this, because in the Bible, theology is never really about theology. It's always in the service of life. It's always, a, it's always brought out as a practical point to substantiate some, some behavior or to teach us about worship. Always how it happens in the Bible. Theology is never about theology. It's always about something practical in our lives. And so, in our passage today, the same is true. If you look at this, what it's talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, really the whole passage, 5 through 11, these seven verses, <clears throat> it's giving us something called the Historia Salutis. The Historia Salutis, that's Latin, for the story of salvation is something that the theologians term this historia salutis. It's a helpful outline for understanding what Jesus did to save us, what he accomplished to save us, the acts in which he, he, he did this. And uh, his, theologians are easy on us. They, they make uh, the historia salutis all these shun words so we might remember it. So it starts out with the Annunciation and the Incarnation, and then it's the Crucifixion, and then it's the Resurrection, and then the Ascension, and then the Glorification or, or Consummation. That's the Historia Salutis. And it's this helpful outline to say, Jesus did this, this, and this, and this, and that is why we can be saved. Every one of them is essential to giving us life. And if you'll notice, in Philippians 2, it's basically laid out there. It's one of the places where the Historia Salutis is clearly spoken, just about every element there. But again, deep theology, lofty theology, esoteric concepts, right? In the abstract, has nothing to do with theology. This passage isn't, isn't about the Historia Salutis. It isn't about theology at all. It's about humility. Isn't that what Paul is talking about here in this passage? It's about becoming free from the obsession with ourselves. And you know, this is important to the early church. I mean, uh, theologians say that this very passage was a creed. And in the very beginning, the early church they, they would go around saying things, making confessions about what they believed as they were struggling to understand what just happened to them and who Jesus Christ was. They would come up with these confessions. And the likes of Oscar Coleman and, and uh, I. Howard Marshall, they would say, this is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, confession of the Christian church. And Paul is just quoting it here, that they would say, this is who Jesus was, this is what he did. And they were doing this in the service of their lives. 
It's about becoming free from this obsession with ourselves. And that is the real meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. Let's look at it because Christology is really the answer to our self-obsession. You really want to be free. If you were tracking with me at the beginning and say, I would really, I would like to stop thinking so much about what other people think of me. I would like to handle situations in my life without always looking over my shoulders. And, oh, did I do that right? What do they think of me now? What's going to happen? What, what, what's going to happen to my reputation? You would like to be free of that? The answer, according to Paul, is in the mind. It all starts in the mind. And theological reckoning, how to consider things. You know, the whole, this whole passage, he uses the word mind four times. And verse 5, what he's saying there, literally, have the same mind that Jesus had. Now, how do we do that? How do we have the same mind that Jesus? How do we think like Jesus Christ? Somehow, Paul is saying that's going to affect your soul, the state of your soul. Well, he goes through it. Jesus Christ, in his Historia Salutis, considered us better, considered us worthy, perhaps even more worthy than what we are in what he did, to do what he did. And he emptied himself because he counted us better. He emptied himself of his status. Right? How could he empty himself and not grasp at who he was? It was because, this is in the passage, of where he came from and where he was going. He was coming out of the love that existed between him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. You see, there's this internal love of God that secured the Son, right? And he was so secure in that love. He knew that's where he was coming from. He knew that's where he was going. That's where the passage ends up with, again, the affirmation of the Father. And he knew, and because of that, because he was so secure in that love, he was able to not grasp at who he was, to empty himself. Now, when we understand that, when we grasp how he counted us better, it actually frees us to let go of our own reputation. And Jesus reckoning us as worthy to do this, as valuable, it was on account of who he was that it makes the difference. See, Christology turns out to be the answer to our self-obsession. Because verse 6 tells us pretty clearly that Jesus Christ was God. You see, I want us all kind of recognize that. Because you might, you might like hear this in a church and say, Where is, is it really true that Jesus is supposed to be God? We hear it as in verse 6. Um, I don't see how you could say that more clearly given that you have a situation of three persons, one God, all being equal, equally, all the persons equally in God. How could you say that more clearly? You know, not grasping the equality with God. And he emptied himself of his status as God, not grasping that he was God. Now, if anybody had the right to grasp who they were, it was, it was the Christ, it was Jesus Christ, right? 
because he is God. And you know, it's, it's a good thing to grasp being God if you're God, <laughs> right? That's something you should do. It's good for God to be God and to enjoy being God and to hold on to being God. We don't want him to surrender being God. But if anyone had a right to do it, he would, it would be him, but he does. And that's what we call the incarnation, when he let go of that and became one of us that first Christmas. That's the incarnation. And that incarnation is utterly unique in the history of the world, in the history of human thought, in the history of any system of, of, of belief, any religion, utterly unique. There is nothing like this except in Christianity, the incarnation. Now, there have, there have been, you could say, well, in ancient religions, there were theophanies. There was God appearing and sh showing, showing up, you know, in the ancient Greek mythologies. You have gods frolicking around on the earth of doing various things. In ancient Egypt, you had God intruding. You have God coming in in various ways, but nothing like this, where God becomes a human baby, is born as a baby, takes on flesh, and the, and the limitations of what it is to be a human, and then it undergoes a human life of suffering. I mean, human life is hard. It's hard, they're suffering. And we see some of that suffering. He took all of that suffering. He took the, one of those human lives that really you don't want to live the suffering, all those limitations on himself from the beginning through the end. That's the incarnation, utterly unique. You say, well, what about, what about Krishna? You know, didn't he become like a man? Krishna, this is, the very, this is not like a Hindu avatar. Okay? Krishna's uh, kind of separation, his, his kind of stepping back and yet being there, his uh, being, a, being a part is not the same as his, his detachment, the Hindu detachment. It's not the same as Jesus Christ submitting to suffering. Not the same at all. So it's utterly unique. But, you know, it's that uniqueness that is the answer and delivers us from this problem of image obsession. But you're never going to get there if you think just that Jesus was a good teacher you know, that he was this inspiring character. It all depends on who is counting you worthy, who's counting you better. It's the who, and in, in, in the who is counting you better, right? And who he was is what gives you value. Look, let's say <clears throat> your spouse comes to you, and if your spouse comes to you and says, you know, honey, you're doing a terrific job at work. You know, that's nice. You know, that you feel some affirmation from that. It's like a nice feeling. Okay, thanks, honey. But it's completely different if your boss comes to you and says, you're doing a terrific job. <laughs> you know, your wife says to you, it's nice. You feel good. But when your boss says to you, holy cow, you're, you know, you're beaming for a month or at least a week, you know, you're walking around. If your boss really says, to you, you know, you're doing a terrific job. Makes all the difference. Who's saying it to you, right? If, if a, a little kid comes up to you, one, one of your friends or one of your neighbor's kids, they come up to you and they say, you know, you're really pretty. You look good. I mean, that's nice, right? We can feel good about that. It's like, yeah, okay, thanks. You know, if someone says that to us. But if somebody you're romantically interested in says that to you 
If someone you're, you're wanting to date comes out and says, you, you, you look good. You are really looking good. Well, of course, you're sent to heaven, right? It's completely different. Why? Because it depends who says it to you. You know, if you have a neighbor, one of the things I love about this community is I see how some of you are really involved in each other's lives as neighbors. That's so terrific. And you know, it's a real gift from God. But if your neighbor comes into your house, looks at what's going on, and your neighbor says to you, you know, you're a really good parent, you know, that's, that's nice, right? You feel like, well, okay, hey, thanks. You know, it feels like maybe you're doing a good job. Maybe you are, actually. You know, I know you don't think you are, but maybe, maybe, you, maybe you are doing something right. <laughs> you know, your neighbor says that to you, it's great. But when your own child comes to you and says to you, Mom, Dad, you are an awesome parent. I finally see it. I finally realize what you've been doing for me. I finally get it, and you're awesome. Friends, that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? That's when it's like you, have, you don't care what anyone else thinks of you. If your own child says it to you, that makes all the difference. Why? Because who it is that's, that's valuing, that's counting you better, that's counting you worthy, it makes all the difference in the world. Well, friends, this is what's going on in the incarnation, is that God is looking at you and saying, you're worth it. But it's the one saying it to you. God is your, your, your lover, your boss, your child, all wrapped up into one, counting you worthy, saying, you're worth it. You're worth the effort to me. That makes all the difference. That's what secures your reputation. That's what can set you free. Because, you know, when that happens, any of these things happen, it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you, does it? When these things are said to you by these people, you could care less what anybody else thinks. Your boss says that to you, who cares what your coworkers think? You know? Or if your loved one says that to you, who cares how many people told you you were ugly in life? doesn't matter a bit, does it? Well, when God, you get the grasp, the mind of Christ here for you in the incarnation, it starts to not matter anymore what people think. You're set free. That's what it is. So you can't stop obsessing until you know the mind of Christ. You can't know the mind of Christ until knowing what he did. You can't know what he did until you know who he was. And his love makes you worthy Unless you can see that Jesus Christ was God, you can't be set free from your obsessive thoughts about yourself. But if you do, if you do grasp the incarnation, then this Christmas you can relax and stop worrying about your performance. Stop worrying about what everybody is thinking about you. Stop, stop making sure, running around, making sure everybody is thinking well of you. Because honestly, folks, woe to you if everybody does. <laughs> Actually, you're much more useful to God if it's all right if some people hate you. Actually. Actually, you're much more useful to him if, if, some people, if it's okay that some people do hate you. But be that as it may, you'll actually be able to face your life 
much better, much better if you are in this place of the mind of Christ. You'll face these difficult circumstances. If you're facing an end-of-year performance evaluation, you know, you'll be able to face it. Even if you know you're not quite up to snuff, it'll be okay because you've already been assessed by the boss of the universe. And you've come out as the clem de la clem. Or if you are rejected by your love interest, you know, really, that might hurt, but God has already made his judgment on how worthy you are to love. You're already well-loved. You're loved even more by them than that, by that person who you thought could love you. Far more. And even if you're slandered, again, I pray that you're not, but even if you are, understanding this, you can say that my God sees and he has counted me better. And so he will make sure that it turns out all right in the end. It'll all come out in the end. You can, you can rest. You see, it helps you actually. This theology, that isn't really theology, it actually brings you to be able to face life and to be at peace. And one more thing I'll say to you that this does, this is what the passage does, that if you come and have the mind of Christ in this way, you're able to treasure those around you. Like I know that God wants for Iron Church, Ironworks Church. I know that God wants you to be treasuring one another, seeing the value in one another. And this is what lets you do it. It's by, by being released from obsessing about your own, your own status, your own reputation. You know, if you look in verse 3, it gives the instruction. Paul says, count others better. Now, I can tell you, if you go to seminary and, you know, you study the original languages, which I've done, and you really look at the context and understand a lot about the passage and the commentaries and all, you know what that really means? Where, where it's, that word that's translated better there? Let me tell you what it really means. It means this. Better. It means better. <laughs> That's all I mean. <laughs> you pay us for this stuff, right? You know, it's actually what your Bible's saying is true. It's what Paul is saying here is count others better. That is superior. It really means that. More important. More worthy of your time. You know how you can do that? You might say that's difficult to do. When you actually start to do it, you realize it is difficult to do. You start having these questions. What if they're not better? <laughs> what if they're really not better? That question then becomes irrelevant if you've emptied, of your, you've emptied yourself of yourself. If you're empty of yourself, you're no need to grasp your own reputation, then it's no big deal to count others better. You want to do that. And if you are enter into this mind of Christ this way, you will begin to recognize the treasure in the least of your brothers, the least of your sisters, and you'll want to bow down and serve them like there's no tomorrow. That's the way to do it. You can't do it just by telling yourself to do it. You have to enter into this mind of Christ where you can surrender your, your reputation because of the way you have been valued. So be released, friends. 
Be released from needing to preserve your image. Your worth is untouchable. Merry Christmas. <laughs>